All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians uh, chapter 2. We left off in verse 11, and we're going to be going through verse 22. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, and as you find that passage, if you'd stand with me, we're going to read through these verses together and then dive right into them. So let's stand and read Ephesians 2, chapter 11. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without hope in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinance, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came... And preached peace to you who are far off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Verse 19. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the holy foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole body being fit, fitted together, grows into the holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also, being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that you've given us and how that relates to the body of Christ. We just pray that you would bring about healing in our hearts when it comes to relationship with other believers, that we could really see that wall of separation be broken down, that there's no longer division with Jew or Gentile or any other division. God, I thank you so much for this group that has come out on this Wednesday night. Pray you'd really bless them, feed them, and encourage them. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. As Paul writes this letter, we have to understand that the division between Jews and Gentiles was very severe, to the point where Jews taught this, that Gentiles were simply at the place of existence to fuel the fires of hell. That was one thing that the Jews actually taught with one another. If you were a Jew and you saw a Gentile woman that was uh, having trouble in childbirth, that you were supposed to not aid them. That was the rule. You wouldn't aid a, a Gentile woman that was in childbirth. There was a common motto that said, the best of the serpents crush, the best of the Gentiles kill. So that's a pretty big, big statement that w- was made. The Gentiles were dogs in the Jewish mind, and the Jews were homicidal enemies of the human race in Gentile terms. It's hard for us to even come up with an illustration that comes close to how big of a divide it was between Jews and Gentiles. And you may be saying, you know what, Eric, I'm a little bit lost. I'm not sure I know what a Jew is. I don't know what a Gentile is. I hear that all the time. A Jew is someone who's from the nation of Israel. Ethnically, they're from Israel, called the Jews. A Gentile is everybody else who's ethnically not Jewish. 
So most of us, by terms, would be Gentiles. Now, what we're going to learn tonight is when God birthed the church, he formed a new humanity, a new identity. No longer Jew and Gentile, but his bride, the body of Christ. However, some of this old prejudice inside of the church of Ephesus dies hard. And isn't that true? You know, things that we thought about other people before we came to Christ, a lot of times we hold those with us as Christians. So you'll find inside of this local church, similar to this, Rocky Mountain Calvary, that there was a division that was developing where Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles were having a hard time spending time together. They were having a hard time loving each other the way that God intended. And so the theme of this section of scripture is alienation to reconciliation. Going from how we were separated from God, God has brought us to himself, and then that brings reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles. And the lesson's really clear for us tonight is our heart towards other believers. And there may be a wall of separation that's between us and another group of believers. Or it may be a specific believer who has hurt us or who is not like us. And we're going to find that it's grace applied. If you remember back a few weeks ago, the first part of chapter 2, we learned about God's grace and how he saved us and has written a story for us to walk in. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus And what that looks like is loving each other. So it's wrong from God's perspective if I receive grace, God's kindness, and his unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor in my life, but I can't extend it to other believers. It should be expressed in my love for brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, so he's primarily beginning speaking to these Gentile believers who are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. That at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel or foreigners from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So verse 11 through verses 13 is alienation, far off. It's the fact that we were far off from from Christ. And what the Spirit is wanting us to remember is our condition before we receive Christ as our Savior. So I want you to think for a moment what your life was like before you're Christian, before you were following Christ. Because we need to identify with that of what it was like to be on the outside without Christ for God to draw us near, then that will affect the way we treat other believers. If I forget how gracious God has been and is currently being in my life, then I'm going to have a difficult time extending acceptance, grace, forgiveness to someone in my world that I would consider to be a Gentile, someone in my world that I would consider to to be a Jew. And you've probably discovered that Satan loves dividing believers. Isn't that true? He loves it. He's the accuser of the brethren. So it may be where he wants us to think bad of another church in town, and they're believers, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe they do things a little bit different than the way we do them, but they're not heretical, they're not false doctrine, but yet, because it makes us uncomfortable, we can begin to think bad of them. And sometimes, even inside of one particular church, they can start to have hard feelings towards towards another church, or 
Maybe there's a believer that's hurt you and walking through that process of forgiveness. Isn't forgiveness a process? Or we're continuing to choose to, to forgive? And there's Satan to tell you, well, they haven't changed. Why would you forgive them? Why would the wall of separation be broken down in, in your life? It's best if you would just keep them at arm's length. So we look at the fivefold alienation that we were before we received Christ. This is what we suffered with. And the first you'll find is Christless. You are without Christ. Christ means Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. You are without Christ. You are without a savior. Without the anointed one from the Old Testament. It's important to, to remember what your life is like without Christ. At one point you were you were without Christ. So first was Christless. And the second is stateless, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, not a part of the people of God. It's a real privilege to be part of the family of God, isn't it? You know, I look at people that don't know Christ, how they get through the difficulties of this life. First, they don't have their anchor, which is Jesus, but then they also don't have the commonwealth of God's people. God's people really know how to rally. God's people really know how to, to come around one another. This is several years ago now, but God brought a, a young couple into to our lives and they lost a, a child at birth, it was stillbirth, and we had the opportunity just to try to love, love on them and minister uh, to them, my wife and I, and we were blown away that no one brought them any meals. Like all their friends were unbelievers. They had no idea about the things of Christ. And Amber and I grew up in the church. We, we both got saved at young ages and we're used to when other believers suffer that believers rally. It's what our parents did. It's what we've been around. It, it, it's what we're used to. But then you think about someone that doesn't have believers in their life and nobody's calling. No one's saying, I can, pray, can I pray for you? No one's offering to, to bring, bring meals. There, there's not that identification. So they were stateless. But it also says that they're friendless, strangers from the covenants. It says strangers from the covenants of, of promise. And so not having that fellowship inside of the things of God and the promises of God. And then it says in verse 12, no hope. Man, I think that this is really seen in the mindset of people that don't know Christ as their Savior. Biblical hope is the confident expectation of coming good. That God is good, that he does good, that's what we hold on to, our future and our hope. And apart from that, unbelievers go through this life and they're like, you know, things aren't going to get better. Things are only going to get worse. And there's a real reason for depression. There's no hope in their lives. And then they're hopeless, and then finally they're godless. So Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, godless. And this was us. That's what the reminder of this is is that before Christ got a hold of our lives, we were without God. We were without hope. And yet God came and he intervened. We have some historical ancient writings from the Roman world, the Roman period, and these were some things uh, that were written. This was by one man he wrote, I will try to have a good time while I'm young because when I lie under the earth for a long time, Voiceless as a stone, and I shall leave the sunlight that I have loved, then I shall see no more. Have a good time, my soul, while young. Soon others will take my place, and I will be black earth in death. No mortal is happy under the sun. Man, it sounds like a rap song from today, doesn't it? A little hip-hop coming to you. 
You know, there's no point, you know. That, that was being written by those that didn't know the Lord at, at this time. This was a Roman poet. It says, the sun can set and rise again, but once our brief light sets, there is one unending night to be slept through. So it, it displays that kind of, of hopelessness. So we see how we were alienated. We were far off. And God pursued us with his love. And now is this tremendous contrast in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, that's the big theme of these first three chapters of Ephesians. You're in Christ. This is the position that you have in Christ. You once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So first, alienation, far off. Now reconciliation, brought near. Now how, how near is near, right? Right? Well, near is as close as words can describe. We're brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. So near that God's our Father. So near that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. So near that we are joint heirs with Christ. I mean, words can't really express the closeness in which God brought us near. It wasn't that we were reconciled to God and God's like, you know what? Just kind of stay out to pasture. You, you, you're my son, you're my daughter, but I don't want to hear from you too, too much. Or God didn't save us for us to just get through life on our own. I mean, the whole reason that God saved us is to bring us into fellowship with him. Amen? So we're brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're brought into relationship. We're, we're brought into this tremendous unity with the Lord. Where Christ says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Christ in you is, is the hope of glory. What a price was paid in order to bring us into reconciliation. What God did for me to reconcile my sin, reconcile my differences, so the wall of separation could be broken down between me and God is much bigger than any price that I would have to pay in order for there to be unity with another believer. And for some reason, I think our flesh just starts to put the brakes on when we talk about being unified with unbelievers. Our flesh starts to go, I'm not going there. I, I'm not going to allow the wall of separation to be broken down with that person. They, they've just hurt me too bad. I, I can't fellowship with them. I, I can't be in, in unity with them. That's, that's more than what God would, would ask for me. And that's our flesh. But then our spirit's going, you know what? They're a brother in Christ. They're a sister in Christ. And yes, they're flawed. And yes, they've hurt you, they've hurt me, but how many people have I hurt? Well, I don't want to deal with that, you know? And the Spirit of God is saying, okay, I want you to look at this. I think it's going to be very difficult for us to walk in the unity that God desires if we fail to see the work of Christ on the cross. It only happens through Christ on the cross. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of some of these people in the church of Ephesus. You're talking generations upon generations upon generations of this is how you think about Gentiles. This is how you think about Jews. And here's this message that Paul's giving. It's saying, now you love one another. Now you spend time in each other's homes together. If there's a need, then you, you give to, to one another. And you could hear the kind of resistance inside of them. I, no way, I'm not going to do that. This is completely countercultural to what they've been feeling and thinking. In verse 14, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. So it's Jesus. He's our peace. He's the Prince of Peace. 
He's broken down the middle wall of separation. First between us and him. Remember when Christ was crucified, what happened in the temple? The veil of the temple was torn in two. The veil separated people from God's presence. One man, one day a year, on the day of atonement, could go into the presence of God, the high priest. Quite a change when God said, now the wall of separation has been torn in two. And whoever wants to come in, you can come in. Come in and enjoy. Come to to my presence through faith in what Christ has done. He's removed that wall of separation. I hope you know this as a believer. If you're in Christ, because of your position in Christ, you have peace with God. No longer is there enmity between us and God. God's not mad at you. God's not punishing you because of your sin. He's not punishing me because of my sin, because I'm in Christ. Now, that doesn't justify sin. It doesn't mean that I want to live a life of sin. But the atmosphere of my relationship with the Father is one of peace because of Christ. He is our priest. He's removed that wall of separation. But not only between us and God, but also between us and other believers to to remove that. The Berlin Wall was up from 1961 to 1989. Most of us probably remember when it came down, when the wall was broken, separating East and West Berlin. And how many times, we're again, we're talking tonight with believers, have we put up a wall of separation? How quickly that wall of separation begins to be put up. How many times have churches been divided where there's no longer fellowship and actually two different bodies are formed because some type of fraction has taken place? over silly issues, sometimes serious issues. Now, if it's an issue of truth, if it's an issue of sound doctrine, how people are saved, the gospel, the truth is a reason to divide over. But we're talking about here issues that aren't related to truth that often come up amongst believers. What are some things that could be the wall of separation today? Is race still an issue today? Is there prejudice today inside of the church as a whole? And I'm speaking as the body of Christ as a whole. It's interesting as you look at our country, I don't think that this is an issue that we've put behind us. There's so many things that are taking place with the prejudice between race and the division but between race. And I've got to tell you, that has no place inside of the body of Christ. What if it came to someone who used to be Muslim and they receive Christ as their savior, could you fellowship with them in the same way that you fellowship with somebody who you grew up with in Colorado Springs? Because in Christ, you have the same unity with them as you do with the person that you grew up in Colorado Springs. But it may be a little bit harder. You may have a little bit of prejudice to to get over. It's hard to, to see past some things maybe that we bring to the table and say, you know what, they're in Christ. You know, and to see them the way that God would see them. How about someone who's a Muslim who's lost? They're not saved yet. Do we have the heart to see them come to know Christ as their Savior? I was really convicted by this question several years ago. Is there any people group or person that I've left out of the Great Commission? The Great Commission is what? Go and preach the gospel to all nations. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And is there a part of the nations that you've left out? Is there a people group that you just don't like? 
that you don't see through the, the blood of Jesus and it starts to begin to get a little bit more uncomfortable. A lot of times I think we believe that we're past this. How about a believer that's in a completely different economic bracket? Could you fellowship with them or is there a wall of separation? Let's say there's someone really poor and you don't consider yourself to be wealthy, but could you fellowship with them? Could you have good unity with them in Christ Jesus? Could they be a good friend in Christ even though they're in a totally different economic bracket? Say that, you know, you're middle class and someone's extremely wealthy. I think sometimes that can be uncomfortable and you could maybe find yourself putting them into a category and making judgments about them and having a difficult time fellowshipping with them because they're wealthy. And all of a sudden, that can get into your heart and mind. And I got to tell you, there's no room for prejudice inside of the body of Christ, whether it's the color of someone's skin or whether they have money or they don't have money. The book of James really addresses that. When people come into church, they shouldn't be treated differently based on whether they have money or they don't have money. And that can go both ways, can it? That can be flipped on us uh, pretty, pretty easily. How about someone that's just really different? You know? Everything inside of you says, I want to run the other way because their personality drives you nuts. Might be kind of nice if our personalities went away the moment that we got saved. But that's not what happens, is it? God wants to use our different personalities. We're, there is diversity. We're all part of the body of Christ. And instead of seeing them and walking the other way to getting to that place of saying, you know what, I'm going to remove that wall of separation. Now, not everybody's going to be your best friend. But it, we're talking about the condition of our hearts and the way that we see them. Have we put up that, that wall of separation? Maybe one that's the most relatable is somebody that's hurt us. Another believer that's hurt us and that wall of separation has, has come up. And we look at this word and it says that God has broken down that middle wall of separation. Maybe it's someone really close to you, even inside of your own home. It's your spouse or one of your children or your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister or, or someone that you traveled through life with. Again, this is Satan's ace card. It's what he loves to play. And all of a sudden, the, the wall of separation has, has gone up. In verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. That is, the law of commandments contained in the ordinance, so that to create himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So how could the wall of separation be broken down between Jew and Gentile? We've got to understand, even in the temple... There was a court of Gentiles where the Gentiles couldn't go in and worship with the Jews. So even from their Old Testament understanding, they'd be going, hey, this is really strange that now we're going to worship together with believers that are, that are Gentiles. So how was it that the wall of separation was broken down? It's in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Jesus abolished the enmity. Enmity means the state or feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. Paraphrase, when someone's on your bad list. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying. We all have the bad list. You just got on my list and it's hard to get off, right? That's hostility. That's, that's enmity. And Jesus abolished that between us and God. 
There, there was that enmity. I was at war with God because of my sin, but Jesus took my sin upon himself. He took the requirements upon himself of the law. He fulfilled the law per- perfectly and was the perfect sacrifice. So there's real offense. There's another believer that has hurt you. Maybe there's stuff that goes way back in, in the past, like this Jew and Gentile war that had developed, and Christ took that upon himself. He's the one who has righted all the wrongs. The thing that I'm so offended by, Jesus has paid the price for upon the cross. And this is where we have a rub with grace. This is where I have a rub with grace. Because forgiveness and God's grace looks really great in my life when I'm the one receiving it. I love wearing the grace of God when I need to receive it. But then it's difficult when I need to extend it, and it's time for someone else to receive the grace of God. And what Jesus tells us, if I'm going to receive the grace of God, if I'm going to rejoice that Jesus has paid the price for my sin, the law that I've broken, he's paid for it, then I've got to be willing to extend it to someone else. And what I love about this passage, and I want you to focus in on this, is in himself, the end of verse 15, He created one new man from the two, thus making peace. So in God's mind, it's no longer Jew and Gentile, but it's a new humanity. It's the body of Christ, made up of Jews and Gentiles. There was a pastor in Australia named Bishop John Reed, and he also drove school bus. And on his school bus, he had some white kids and some aborigines. And these kids fought brutally with each other based on their race. And he just got tired of it. He said, I'm going to solve this. Today, this is going to be done. He gets all the white kids off the bus. And he says, you know what? You're no longer white. You're green. Do you got this? You guys are green. Okay. They all said, we're green. Gets all the aborigine kids off the bus. Says, you know what, guys? You're not black. You're green. Okay? You're green. Everybody's green. We're all good. We've got a new race, a new humanity. Get, Get back on the bus. And this worked for about 15 minutes until the kids divided into light green and dark green, you know? (laughs) But the pastor had the right idea. He wanted to try to form a new identity. You know, he knew that he needed to get past people seeing each other by the color of their skin. But he didn't have the power to do that in that moment without all those kids coming to Christ, amen? The only thing that gets us past that place is Christ, and what he's done on the cross, how he sees us, how we're to see one another. And so this is an area for us to grow in. How do we primarily see each other? Do we see each other through culture and the color of skin, Jew, Gentile, economy, education, job, experience, likes, dislikes? Or do we see each other in this new identity, the body of Christ? You're my brother in Christ. You're my sister in Christ. We have been joined together, linked together in this beautiful mystery called the body of Christ. And isn't it fun to be able to relate to each other in that way? Isn't it fun to get together with believers where first and foremost, they're not concerned with what you do for a living or how much money you make or, or those types of things where some of those questions may come up, but what it really gets to is how are you doing in Christ? How's your relationship with Christ going, and this is what God has made. Do you know how mind-blowing this would be outside of the church in Ephesus? They go, wow, there's Jews and Gentiles hanging out together, going to each other's homes. 
And I think a lot of times, if people took the time to look at the relationships inside of the church, they'd be blown away. They'd be blown away. When would all of us get together and hang out if it weren't for Christ? We're very different. We have different likes, we have different backgrounds, different cultures, but yet in Christ, we're able to come together and be able to rejoice together. A new identity, a new humanity. In verse 16, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity. This is powerful. Brought near, reconciled. He brought them both to God in one body. It's through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. If Christ has put to death the hostility through his work on the cross, why would I resurrect that? Why would I resurrect that wall of separation? If Jesus has broken down the wall of separation, why would I rebuild it? Why would I put it back up? In verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and those who are near. Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles were far off. The Jews were near. The Jews had the Old Testament, knew the Old Testament prophecy. And Jesus preached to both Jew and Gentile. We see that throughout Christ's ministry. He's ministering to Jews and he's ministering to Gentiles. The disciples taking his message, going to Jews and Gentiles, this new identity that has been been formed. I think of Jesus in John 4. It tells us that he needed to go through Samaria. Samaria was this part of, of Israel, north of Jerusalem, south of the Sea of Galilee. Today it's in the West Bank. And the Jews didn't go through there because of the Samaritans. The Samaritans ethnically were half Israeli and half a mixture of other nations. Because when the Assyrians took over that part of Israel, one of the ways they conquered is they took some people captive and then they sent in other people from other nations to intermarry. And so then you came up with this people group called the Samaritans. They also mixed their own religion. They came up with their own ideas about God and following God. So the Jews, the devout Jews, they said, we don't want anything to do with Samarians. So when they would go to the Sea of Galilee, the direct route would be right through Samaria. But instead, they would go around Samaria to get to the Sea of Galilee. It's interesting you do that today when it comes to the West Bank because the West Bank isn't safe. And so you go around what was ancient Samaria to get to the Sea of Galilee. But what did Jesus say? I've got to go to Samaria. And he was tired and he was weary. He sent the disciples to go get him some food, to get him some falafels to go, bring it back. And he's sitting by the well and here comes this woman, this Samaritan woman who is getting some water and Jesus begins a conversation with her. He says, could I have some water? And before you know it, he's identifying the living water that's missing in her life. He went and preached to the Gentiles, but he also ministered to the Jews and brought us together. Now, I want you to think of Jesus preaching and bringing people together, whether it was in his earthly ministry or through his disciples, and now you've got believers, Jews and Gentiles, all gathered together, and you're there because Jesus has invited you, but all of a sudden you're looking across the table at hostility to somebody else that he brought. Doesn't that seem a little bit offensive? Imagine if you went to somebody's house, and all of a sudden you're not okay with who they invited. And you're starting to look across the table and you're like, 
it's great to see you meet the knuckle sandwich, right? It's offensive to the host. It's offensive to the one that has invited you both to be there. And so that's the emphasis of verse 17. It's like Jesus went out and preached. Jesus went out and gave this invitation. And he brought Jews and Gentiles, both that were near and far. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. This is the apex of our reconciliation and our unification is that we are worshiping the same Father. So here's this believer that has hurt me, that God's calling me to forgive. And at the end of the day, they're worshiping the same Father that I do. We've been adopted the same way. It's the same blood of Jesus Christ that was paid. And we have access by the same Spirit. And we're gonna spend all of eternity together. So why not let it go? Now, in order for there to be reconciliation, a lot of times in relationship, there needs to be communication. There needs to be confrontation. If there's sin that's occurred, hopefully there's repentance of sin. All of that is necessary. And Matthew 18 walks us through that process. But what's important in Matthew 18 is it says, we're going to talk to them to win a brother. So even prior to that conversation, we have the heart of Jesus And that is that we've already forgiven. We've already chosen, I'm going to forgive. Regardless of how they respond, if they continue in their sin, I'm going to walk in a heart of forgiveness because God has has forgiven me. And so it takes a, a work of restoration to occur, but our hearts need to be right. We need to remember that we've been brought together. We have the same Father through the same Spirit. And if there's anything that we bring from a cultural worldview where we've got a prejudice towards a people group and those people know Christ as our Savior, man, we need to let that go. That has no place inside of the family of God. So from verse 19 to 22, we look at habitation. So we've seen alienation, reconciliation, now habitation, and this is God's city. So he's got this new group, the body of Christ, brought together in his city. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So there's several things here, and there's this emphasis once again on this is what you were before, and this is what you are now. You're no longer strangers, you're no longer foreigners, but you're fellow citizens. It's difficult to be a stranger and a foreigner, isn't it? I mean, it's difficult to go into a group of people that all know each other, and you're the one outsider, You go to a new small group. You sign up for a new Bible study. They've been doing life together for five years, and then all of a sudden, you're the newbie. You remember those moments in junior high and high school where you were the foreigner and the stranger? I could have died a thousand deaths. My freshman year of high school, signing up for choir. I'm a big basketball guy, and now I'm taking choir. I was a stranger and a foreigner, you know? I was... I don't know, up a creek without a paddle or something. I don't know. It feels strange. Imagine somebody who is a refugee who comes from another country to America. They don't know the language. They're not here because they want to be here. They're here because their country is violent. That's a difficult place to be in. Take yourself and throw yourself into a country overseas that we're not familiar with all. You, you, You don't understand the language. You get out of the airport, you don't know anybody, you're a stranger and a foreigner. 
And that's what God's saying is before we came to new Christ our Savior, that's how we did life, didn't we? Spiritually, we were a stranger and a foreigner. But now, in God's city, in God's habitation, we're fellow citizens. We're citizens of heaven. And it includes Jews and Gentiles. It includes people of different races, of all races, of different economic value, different economic places. Philippians 3 verse 20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul was writing this to the city of Ephesus, citizenship was a big deal. This is a Roman empire. If you were a citizen of Rome, it came with a lot of rights. This is written about citizenship at the time. Citizenship was even a greater source of pride in the ancient world, in the Greek-Roman culture to which Paul was writing in Ephesus. Citizenship was highly personal. One's city provided one's identity. The city's laws were part of one's being. Its customs, a source of pride. Its habitation were one's lifelong friends. Today, citizenship is a big deal, isn't it? If you carry a U.S. passport in your pocket or you can apply for one and get one, it is a big deal. You can get into countries that a lot of people can't get into. The access to travel we have is amazing. Every time I've left the country and come back to the United States of America, it's always felt good every time. We've tremendously been blessed by God, even with all of the problems that we have. If you are a U.S. citizen, it is, it is a blessing. And you know what? People from other countries feel the same way about their country. They take pride in their citizenship, don't they? So we understand this concept of citizenship. I was reading an article last week. You maybe followed this, but there was a group of Israeli tourists that went to Turkey. They were in Turkey and on the tour bus and the whole thing, and they were being followed, and then a suicide bomber attacked them and, 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 and attempted to kill all of them, and a lot of them did pass away. As soon as Israel heard about a, that event, they put people on the plane to go and help them. So within hours of that happening, there was Israeli government officials who were there helping in any way that they could. They took all of the wounded and didn't put them in a hospital in Turkey. They put them on a plane and got them back to, to Israel. Everybody that died, they brought back to Israel, all expenses paid by Israel. They take their citizenship seriously. In the same article, it said there were 17 Israeli citizens that were still in Yemen. Yemen has gotten very violent. And that day, Israel went and got them out of Yemen. Israel has a policy, if you're an Israeli citizen and you're in a dangerous situation in a foreign country, that you're to contact Israel before you even contact that country's local embassy because they will come and help their own people. I was like, wow, that is pretty awesome that that's how seriously they protect their, their own people. But you have to remember, they've been through the Holocaust. So they're, they're saying, we're not going to stand by while our people get murdered, even if it is in another country. Now, I say all of this to bring you to this. How much do you think God identifies with citizenship? Because it's an analogy that God has given. He's saying, you have citizenship in your own country, but now you have God's city, you've got God's habitation, and you're fellow citizens in heaven. So if, if Israel helps each other this way, if Americans help each other in this way, how much more so should we help each other inside of the body of Christ? Now, in an election year, we've got to remind ourselves that we're citizens of heaven. 
Like I mentioned, I'm very thankful for our country. And I think being citizens of heaven doesn't mean you're not engaged culturally. You should vote. If you haven't registered to vote, you should register to vote. And you should take your Bible with you when you go and vote. Because we should take the scriptures into every part of our lives, our work, our home, and voting as well. If all of Christians just opt out of the process, it's going to get even worse for, for our country. But as we engage culturally in our state, you know, and as we engage on a federal level, we have to understand we have hope because our citizenship is in heaven. I don't think it advocates us of our responsibility here, but we're able to go through this life differently knowing that we're citizens in heaven. The end of verse 19 gives us another metaphor. So Paul likes to use metaphors, and he'll use several of them in the same sentence. Apparently, he didn't do very good in freshman English, but we're better for it. We're better that he puts in a bunch of metaphors. And he says, you're members of the household of God. This speaks of family. We use this term frequently, family members. It means something. I'm blown away not only by the bond of citizenship, but by the family bond, the biological bond that, that you have with one another. And we have that as brothers and sisters in Christ. And is that how we see each other? Do we see each other as Jews and Gentiles? Or do we see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ? In verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, this whole picture of being God's habitation, of God's house, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So we're built on Christ. He is the chief cornerstone. Jesus said, Therefore, it's also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means put to shame. The cornerstone determined the stability of the foundation and the character of the entire building. Everything went off the cornerstone. And Christ is that foundation. Catch this and we'll be done. In verse 21 and 22, in whom the whole building, being fit together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So Jews, Gentiles, all these different backgrounds, saved by God's grace, put together, fit together, growing together, living stones, so that collectively, together, we could be the house of God. The house of God is not this building. As thankful as we are to see that fireplace up and going, woo, you know, it's like Lazarus has risen from the dead. There's going to be a fireplace in the foyer. You know, it's a blessing to have a facility. It really is. But the house of God is not the facility. It's us. God dwells in you. He dwells in me. Christ in you is the hope of glory. But it's not an individual thing. It's a collective thing. Collectively, God dwells in us. And then God slips in here this little illustration. Paul very meticulously saying, fitted together grows the holy temple. I'm sure there's some of these stones that are being put up in the foyer that just aren't quite right. So what are the masonries doing? They're probably knocking off some rough edges. I was watching them today. Big crew in here. It was neat to see them see them work. And how much more so is God going, Eric, you're a knucklehead. You're being a knucklehead right now. You've got some selfish, rough edges that need to be just knocked off. So what does he do? He rubs me up against another believer. 
and iron sharpens iron, and personalities fly, and selfishness meets selfishness. And that's God's work at refining us to make us into a more holy habitation for him to be able to dwell. The Christian life, if you look at it through the lens of scripture, cannot be lived in isolation. You can't do it by yourself. You look at the commands of the New Testament, it's impossible to live out by yourself. God's saying, I want you to be in relationship with other believers. Well, that's hard. That's the point. (laughs) That's the point exactly. Because it's in those difficulties, as we wrestle with one another, as we bump each other and rub one another, if we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, that God is going to cause us to be fit together. In southern Oregon, where I grew up, there's a lot of wonderful rocks that you can collect. You can get a, a rock tumbler. And what happens in that tumbler is these rocks become shiny. But in the tumbler, it's a painful process. They're literally getting knocked on top of each other. And that's what happens with us as believers. And you go, oh, there's a Jew. Oh, there's a Gentile. Oh, oh, it's uncomfortable. I would never hang out with somebody like that. And God's going, oh, this is perfect. This is wonderful. But how cool is it that we're the habitation of God? That he dwells, that he's chosen by his grace to dwell in this people. So application is reconciliation. Will you walk across the wall of separation? Will you walk across the wall of separation? We were alienated. God showed us grace and to extend that grace to others. I want to read to you a few things that Christ says from the book of Matthew. Just take it in. Listen to it. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Do you need to forgive tonight? Do you need to walk across that wall that Christ has broken down? If you forgive, God will forgive you. Therefore, if you bring a gift to the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. As much as possible, as depends upon you, live peace with all men. Have you gone to them? Have you attempted to go to them? Do you need to go to someone tonight to see God do a work of reconciliation? And then Matthew 5, verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. What does that mean to be called the sons of God, to be called the children of God? A lot of times we look like our parents, don't we? I look like my dad. And a lot of times people go, oh yeah, yeah, there's, there's Glenn's son. There's no, no doubt about it. And if you want people to look at you and go, oh, there's a Christian. There's a daughter of God. There's a son of God. Be a peacemaker. Because he's a peacemaker. And guess what? He paid the price in order to have peace with us. That doesn't even make sense. We should have been the ones to have to pay the price. But he wanted peace so much that he paid the price in order for us to have peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Let's stand and let's pray. Fathers, we read your word tonight. We know that you desire that we be doers of your word. We don't want to just gain head knowledge. Help us grow in our relationship with you and also our relationship with one another. Help us to love in a greater way to see the connection that we have as fellow citizens, as, as your habitation. And Holy Spirit, would you lead us in, 
and being one that could walk in the attitude of being a peacemaker. So as we take communion, would you bless this time? In Jesus' name, amen.